The following was recorded at the Necronomicon, live from the Biltmore Hotel in Providence, Rhode Island, on August 22nd, 2015. That was that was genuinely terrifying. All right. It is probable that the facts in regard to the mysterious destruction by fire of an abandoned house on a knoll along the shore of the Seekonk in a little habited district between the Washington and Red Ridges will never be entirely known. The police have been beset by the usual number of cranks purporting to offer information about the matter, none more insistent than Arthur Phillips, the descendant of an old East Side family, long resident of Angel Street, a somewhat confused but earnest young man who prepared an account of certain events he alleges led to the fire. Though the police have interviewed all persons concerned and mentioned in Mr. Phillips' account, no corroboration, save for a statement from a librarian at the Athenaeum, attesting only to the fact that Mr. Phillips did once meet Miss Rose Dexter there, could be found to support Mr. Phillips' allegations. The manuscript follows. That was the prelude to a story by August Derleth called The Dark Brotherhood. And uh, supposedly this story was inspired by some scribblings by H.P. Lovecraft, and that's why we're talking about it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Live in Providence. You can, of course, uh, always find us on your internet dial at hppodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and with us, as always, not always... But with us at every lucky, live show. At every live one so far, I'm Andrew Lehman. We are uh, so excited to be back in this beautiful city and attending Necronomicon. We came here and did the show two years ago, and it was an absolute blast. I'm seeing some folks that were there then as well. Thank you so much for coming again. I'm glad we didn't scare you off. I want to thank Niels and all the event organizers. Uh, none of us really deserve uh, no. the nice treatment we've gotten. No, it's been too nice. Uh, we appreciate it very much, though. And uh, also join us to provide some music and ambience is our old friend Lyle Erickson. Woo! Lyle contributes lots of music to the show and uh, creates his own. You can grab Lyle's music at spidertranslator.com. I highly recommend it. He's got a new album coming out soon. It's going to be awesome. I'm very excited about it. And also, I want to thank our generous backers, because if it wasn't for you guys, we wouldn't be here doing this right now and sharing in your beautiful faces and all that stuff. I don't know what Sharing in about. your faces? Yeah. Look, I got the faces. It's great. Sounded vaguely dirty. Uh, I hope we can do justice to this amazing story we're going to cover today. <laughs> but before we get into it, uh, last time we were here, we actually covered Lovecraft's sonnet cycle, the fungi from Yugoth. That was the, the show right. that we did. And during the show, we learned that there were a number of musical compositions based on these poems that dated all the way back to Lovecraft's lifetime. And we are very lucky to be sponsored today by the publishers Fidogan and Bremer, who have just made these compositions available for your listening pleasure. It's a deluxe two-CD set called Fungi from Yugoth. Please pick it up. We're going to have some for sale here, so after the show, if you want to come by up to the 
front, pick one up, but you can also get them from the Fidogan and Bremer booth. Originally, they were uh, cassette tapes in the 80s. Yes, that's right. When this recording was first made, the first disc, it represented the first commercially made performance of HPL Sonnet Cycle. It's still the best with an award-winning electronic score by Mike Olson, dramatically highlighting equity actor and voice artist John Arthur. It's soothing and it's beautiful, and I <laughs> am so happy that I've got to experience it. Well, the really cool thing is the bonus disc on here presents the first ever recordings of Harold Farnese. Am I saying that right? Is it Farnese? Harold Farnese's settings of two of the sonnets to music. And Harold was a Paris-trained award-winning composer. He actually read the sonnets in Weird Tales at the time that they were published. And he wrote Lovecraft and he said, could I put some of these to music? HPL himself approved these pieces in 1932, but they were thought to be lost until now. You can yeah. get them on this second disc. Soprano Maria Jett, you might know her because she's been on uh, Prairie Home Companion. Prairie yes, Home. that's it. And uh, NPR, she's really talented, and she does some great vocals, uh, accompanied by Dan Walzak. Yep. And you can pick it up here at Necronomicon, and not just here at Necronomicon, but here at this table after the show. We're <laughs> going to have some copies available right over there. Please get it and give it a listen. And, you know, we mispronounce so many things on our show all the time. <laughs> I wish you were around all the time so we could just <laughs> check with you before you say things like Belknap Long. But let's get into the story. Yeah, the story. So, uh, Chad, I got to tell you, this might be the nuttiest story that we've ever covered. We say that a lot, but this is really crazy. And I am so glad that we're covering it here and now. Yes. I have to thank listener Tom Mueller. Uh, I looked through my email, and he had actually recommended this specific story to us. I had no idea what we would do for the show. We just happened to be doing Durleth this month. But when I gave this one a scan, I, I knew it would be perfect as it concerns the very weird things that can happen while touring through as it's frequently referred to in the story, nocturnal providence. <laughs> I'm going to experience a little nocturnal, nocturnal uh, providence I've been later. experiencing yeah. a lot of it this week. <laughs> so, uh, shall we start with the story? Are we ready yeah, do to it. go? Yeah, do it. Go. Okay, so it starts off with this guy, Arthur Phillips. He's the narrator of the tale. And uh, he's a providence fella, born and bred. He started off as a, sick, a sickly child, and he loved to read... And he liked to creep around Providence at night. And I don't know, does that sound like anybody you've ever heard? <laughs> Obviously, this character is a Lovecraft stand-in. But there's also some writing here that seemed to me to be an imitation of the outsider. Uh, when he's describing the people who do roam Providence at night that he sees, they hide away by day, and they are the misshapen, the lonely, the sick, the very old, the haunted, and those lost souls who are forever seeking their identities under cover of night. These are the hurt by life, the maimed, men and women who have never recovered from the traumas of childhood or who have willingly sought after experiences not meant for man to know. I went to the Eldritch Ball last night, and that was a pretty good description of the folks there. <laughs> so far, Durleth is doing a good job. Uh, at the top, they talk about the Athenaeum quite a bit because it, it's a focal point of this story a, a bit. And it's a location that uh, is here, obviously, in Providence. And Lovecraft mentioned it a few times. And I think we've talked about this on the show, the Athenaeum, right? Yeah, we discussed it last time we were here, but uh, let's do a recap of oh, why sure. this was probably important yeah. to do Yeah, so this is Lovecraft in a letter to James Morton in 1923. He says, our old Athenaeum where Poe spent many an hour and wrote his name at the bottom of one of his unsigned poems in a magazine. And uh, is, that still, is that still there? Yep. It is oh, still yeah. there, yeah. And uh, he also wrote Providence, which burned Eddie living, now reveres him dead, treasures every memory connected with him, the hotel where he stopped, the churchyard where he wandered, the house and garden uh, where he courted the... Uh, His enamorata. Enamorata. That's a crazy word. Uh, the Athenaeum... The chick he liked, you know. Yeah, the girl who he was into, yeah. Uh, the Athenaeum where he used to dream and ramble through corridors all still with us uh, as by a miracle of absolutely unchanged, even 
in its least detail, and that was to Frank Belknap alone. No, no. <laughs> Actually, I think it's funny in that letter that he says, which spurned Eddie li- living. I know that he was a huge fan of Edgar Allan Poe, but that's a little familiar, isn't yeah, it, it's, Eddie? It's, I find you too familiar. Uh, so Poe was courting Sarah Whitman, which again, we talked about Sarah mm-hmm. Whitman yeah. before, yeah. They have uh, portraits of them there. Right, and she lived in Providence. He came here a few times, and uh, he talked about, Poe did, seeing her for the first time in a rose garden over on Benefit Street, which is, uh, you know, lots of cool love kind of things are on Benefit Street. They were actually engaged for a while, but according to the story, they were at the Athenaeum together, and someone handed her a note saying that Poe had broken his promise to her and started drinking again, and then she immediately broke up with him, like on the spot, ran out of the place and never saw him again. And then he died a year later. So that's some pretty intense stuff going on in it's there. A, it's a big connection between Poe and Providence. And you know, while we're on the topic, I also wanted to give some congratulations to our frequent guest, Matt Barisi, who's up here in the front right row. There. Uh, Wait, you don't know why you're... Wait. Because uh, Matt will become the executive director of the Athenaeum on September 1st. He just moved into town this week. And we're taking it over September 2nd. <laughs> <laughs> but we hope the story provides a good cautionary tale for you as you begin your new life in Providence. Uh, let, let, let's get back to it. So our Lovecraft character, he's, uh, well, I'm sorry, our stand-in for Lovecraft, he's not really, his name is Arthur. Arthur Phillips. Uh, likes to roam the city at night. When he wasn't creeping around, he was reading his grandfather's library, and nobody was uh, directing his reading, so he just kind of re- read a bit of everything. Yeah, it sort of reminded me of Ray Bradbury. He always talks about how he's, he didn't go to college, he just went to the public library for three years and read anything he was interested in. He'll say, I graduated from the library. So this guy's very similar to that. He wanted to attend uh, Brown University, this character, but he was too sickly, so it gives him more time to walk around at night (laughs) and roam Providence. I have to say, that's a lot of years of just walking around at night. Yeah, it's not that big of a place. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's cool, but at some point, okay, there's that dumpster, and yeah. So... Uh, the, the interesting thing, though, is he does persuade uh, a young lady to go with yeah, him. Yeah, this fella, fella, this lady, Rose Dexter, she's dark-eyed descendant of the first English families that came into Providence, and uh, I, I, I don't think there's actually a romantic relationship going on between them. They seem to just be friends. Yeah, well, it's, he, well he talks about, you know, she's favored, uh, what's it say, one singularly favored in the proportions of her figure and in the beauty of her features. So, so I think he liked her. He's into her. But she wasn't that into him. Well, they, they originally friends. met at the Athenaeum. Right. Uh, he also, she's an odd character because we only see her through his point of view. It says she was uh, little inclined to irrelevant chatter. And that's why he likes her. <laughs> uh, I, actually, I don't know why she's hanging out with him. Because by this point, I was already like, I don't know about this guy. You know, I'm, yeah. I, I don't know what she's attracted to. But she's just got similar interests, so they're... So they're pals. So one night they're out strolling around Providence together and they meet somebody kind of peculiar. Andrew? We had been exploring Providence in this fashion for several months when, one night on Benefit Street, a gentleman wearing a knee-length cape over wrinkled and ill-kept clothing accosted us. He had been standing on the walk not far ahead of us when first we turned into the street and I had observed him when we went past him. He had struck me as oddly disquieting for I thought his mustached, dark-eyed face with the unruly hair of his hatless head strangely familiar, and at our passing he had set out in pursuit until, at last, catching up to us, he touched me on the shoulder and spoke. Sir, he said, could you tell me how to reach the cemetery where once Poe walked? Hmm. So this guy looks exactly like Poe. He talks about Poe. 
wants to know where the cemetery is, but for some reason the protagonist, he doesn't get it. He's like, oh, gosh, he was really familiar. There's yeah, something about that something guy. Something about him. I don't know. I don't know what. I don't, maybe I saw him at the, the grocery store? Is yeah, I, I'm is? not sure. I don't know. So, and this is, this is I think, taking place in the 30s or something like yeah. that. So it's, he's definitely wearing outmoded clothes. I mean, it's not like he's just anybody off the street. It's a Poe costume. It's, it's some <laughs> cosplay stuff going on there. Yeah. But this Poe guy keeps checking Rose out. But not in a kind of creep way. No, he's no. just kind of coolly studying her. Yeah. He's definitely very interested in her, but it's, yeah, it's not specific. It's not very creepy, but in fact, his face doesn't really betray any emotion at all. It's, it's very, very just yeah. kind of non... Yeah. yeah. But then things get a little uh, poeier. <laughs> he, uh, our character asks the guy, are you a stranger here? And he says, yeah, I'm visiting. And he says, are you, so you want to know where that cemetery is? Are you interested in Poe? And the, the man nods. He says, how much do you know of him? Little, he replied. Perhaps you could tell me more. So the narrator goes into a whole speech about who Poe is. Yeah. He's just happy to have somebody to talk to, I think. The man gives his name. Mr. Allen. <laughs> Narrator still doesn't, doesn't understand. Doesn't know who he is. They walk with the guy. They show him uh, the cemetery that he's looking for. Have you guys visited this place? It's not Swan Point, but it's a smaller uh, cemetery. It's off Benefit Street. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, where Poe and Lovecraft would go and, and hang out themselves. So he shows them the location. And then the guy says, thanks. He doesn't go in. Just moves off into the night. And then so Rose says after he leaves, she, she goes, Arthur, did, did you feel something, something wrong about him? He said, this is a great line. Oh, I suppose there is something wrong in that sense about all of us who are haunters of the dark. <laughs> Perhaps in a way we prefer to make our own reality. And then I would think her response would be, what are you talking about? <laughs> his face doesn't move. That's what I was thought. He does, he, he's weird that way. What well, is you know, also Rose got it right away. She says, did you think he had a resemblance to anybody? And he's like, what are you talking about? He looked exactly like Edgar Allan Poe. So finally the guy, you know, he puts it together. And that ends the first chapter. That's the first chapter. Second chapter, a, a couple of nights later, we see this Poe guy again, and he's close to the house. He's still dressed like Poe. He looks yeah, just like Poe. Well, there was a funny line here. It said, had Mr. Allen put forth any reasonable claim to being a descendant of Poe's, I could have been persuaded to believe. <laughs> but, I mean, obviously, because he resembles him, but because he's dressed like him, like, do all the descendants of somebody just dress like them automatically? Yeah. Because, I, doesn't really make a lot of sense. So Arthur does most of the talking as they walk around, and this Poe guy's pretty quiet, but, or Mr. Allen, excuse me. But when he mentions that he writes for an astro astronomical column in the Providence Journal, the, this Poe guy gets really excited, and he gives him this opinion that there's interplanetary travel, that there's life out somewhere in the, in the galaxy and in even our own solar system. Mm -hmm. They get into this conversation, and um, the main character asks him, do you know Charles Fort and what his theories are? And Mr. Allen doesn't know, so... Uh, he begins to expound on them. And Andrew, you, you portrayed Charles Fort. I, I did. And so what was Charles Fort's, uh, why was he so interesting to people in brief? Uh, in brief, Charles Fort was a, a, a very strange philosopher writer who spent a lot of his time at the uh, New York Public Library collecting clippings of strange things that were mentioned in the press but but uh, explained away by mainstream science and he believed in extraterrestrial life he believed in some very curious things about how the solar system is structured the universe itself um, and he wrote a number of very hard to read and very hard to understand books uh, <laughs> about all sorts of bizarre unexplainable things so did he they said his philosophy. Do you know what his what that mean? What they mean by that? His philosophy. Uh, 
Well, one of his one of his famous and cryptical sayings was, "You you measure a circle beginning anywhere." Uh, he sort of believed that everything bled into everything else. That life, all life, all creation was sort of a spectrum, and there was no. Um, his his writing really is almost. It's so hard to understand. I trying to get ready to to play him. I yeah. read everything he ever wrote, and man, that was that's why it took two years to make that movie. <laughs> uh, it was uh, yeah. He's he's a hard dude to he's a hard dude to understand what he was trying to say. But he was a he was a skeptic of 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 all kinds of mainstream thought. Yeah, and um, and he had some pretty. It's hard to tell from reading his work, whether he really believed the stuff that he himself was writing. Right. It's, it's hard to know what exactly he was so, trying so to So maybe say. it was, he had an outsider's perspective or maybe a more open mind? Uh, yeah, absolutely an open mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's why we, Fordian comes from... Uh, yeah, there's, you know, a, a lot of people, including me, really dig uh, uh, his stuff and there's a magazine currently published uh, called Fordian Times that sort of tracks all kinds of bizarre stuff that happens in the news and, you know, spontaneous human combustion and sightings of alien big cats and all kinds of Wait. crazy, unexplainable, fascinating things. Alien big cats? cats? Alien big... You, you must have heard of alien big cats. No. No. It's all I don't understand how I haven't. Wait, so they're big cats and they're alien? They're, 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 it's sightings of what appear to be big cats in places where big cats ought not to be. Oh, okay. oh that, that I'm familiar with, but they're not wearing little space it's, helmets it, the, or anything. No, no, no. They're not space alien big okay. cats. Oh, okay. They're just, oh, okay. Alien they're, to the they, environments they they're in. They shouldn't be there. Okay. It's called ABC. Okay. It's a big, especially in England, there's oh, yeah. constant oh, yeah. sightings of ABC alien right. big cats. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This, uh, but it's like panthers in your garage. Exactly. Stuff, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of aliens, they, this is what they're discussing. And this Mr. Allen launches into this lengthy statement with the gist of which is that every advanced scientist in the domain of astronomy is convinced that Earth is not unique in having life. We're not the only ones. And this Mr. Allen says that aliens might come visit us sometime. Arthur says, why? To make war on us? To invade us? Oh, and he goes, oh. No, no, they wouldn't do anything like that. They wouldn't use such primitive forms of invasion. If they wanted to come to Earth, they would do things much more insidious and clever. <laughs> no, they're, right. no, they're not. No, they're not. Yeah, no, we're going to use crazy, confusing methods that don't make any sense. You'll, you'll, you'll see. Uh, but Arthur agrees with him about this. He says, you know, I, I think, yeah, there's probably life out there. Uh, Mr. Allen says, so you're, you're open-minded. Well, he says, okay, well, if you permit my brothers and I to call on you at your home... Uh, we might be able to give you some proof that there's life on other planets. He says, all right, sure, yeah. Why don't you and your brothers come over to my house? But if you're going to come over, come over a little later because my, my mom, I want her up in bed by the time. She, she goes to bed like around 8.30, 9 o'clock. So come after, after then. So I just want everybody to try and keep that in mind that when this story's going on, this guy's mom's upstairs. His mom's upstairs asleep. Sleeping. I, and I, I imagine that even his mother who doesn't even look at the people downstairs would be able to go, are you down there with Edgar Allan Poe? <laughs> <laughs> she, would, she would get it, even without having looked at the guy. Oh, golly. But they agree, Monday, let's do this thing. So he says, all right, I'm going to come over with my brothers when your mom's in bed, and, and I'll give you some proof of alien life. <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> now, I don't... It's so good. <laughs> So, um, our guy, mm -hmm. uh, he's curious about where Poe is staying, or Mr. Allen, and uh, he decides he's going to 
run around the block to see where he's coming out and follow him back to his place. And he does that, and he just kind of walks through. There's this old creepy house in this area of town that... Yeah, it's like a somewhat run-down section of Providence. And he goes into the house, and he's waiting for the lights to come on, but he doesn't turn on the lights. And he thinks, oh, I guess he just went straight to bed. Mm, But no, he didn't go to bed. He must have slipped around the back and come out again because Arthur suddenly sees this man approaching the house once again. Yeah. Why he would have done this makes no sense. He goes back into the house. Again, the light doesn't turn on. Arthur waits around a few minutes, and then and he then says, you know. he comes back again. <laughs> right. Around. Why is he doing this? He says, okay, he, he just must be some strange ritual of his, so he leaves. But as he's walking away toward Benefit Street, boom, there's Poe again. And this makes no sense, because he would have had to go out the back, run through an alleyway, run all the way down, and come around, and then come back walking nonchalantly. He doesn't, hasn't broken a sweat or anything like that. So mm-hmm. it makes absolutely no sense. He's, and he sees him. Yeah. And, and he looks, and he goes, hey, what's going on? And then... Poe just kind of walks by, doesn't acknowledge that he knows him, and it's like, doesn't seem to recognize him. Yeah, it's really, really strange. Now, I would think we're dealing with multiple Poes. That's where that's, that's a conclusion I would make, right? Did there. you make that when you were reading the story? You went, "Oh, there's just a bunch of Poes." Yeah, because I didn't. Because that's the craziest thing. I, just, why would that be happening? <laughs> I was just as puzzled as the character at this point. I figured, yeah, no, it was multiple pose. But I, why one would have multiple pose does not make, I, there's no well, I know. Well, and then he, the next night he goes to see Rose at the Athenaeum and she says, oh, you know, it's, I had, he says, I had this weird experience with this guy, but before he can tell her about the multiple pose, she says, oh yeah, no, I saw him too. He walked me home from the library. And it's another Poe. <laughs> it's too many, you know, I, I would think that there couldn't be enough pose. But there's too many poses. There's too many poses. There's too many poses. Uh, I, I didn't like the story. I just felt like maybe there was one Poe too many. The, well, he says to Rose, look, I saw him at the same time you saw him, and then I saw these other guys. He basically retells what we've just said. And she goes, well, maybe he's got brothers. Maybe they're triplets or, or twins or, you know, they're all related, and they just kind of look alike. And you're making, you don't look exactly alike. That doesn't make any sense. Why would they look exactly alike? And uh, he says, well, maybe, I, I guess, but he's going to come to my house on Monday, so I'll, I'll yeah. know. He's going to find out what the deal is when he comes to the house. And that gets us into chapter three. This is when things become clear. It's Monday night. Uh, his mom goes to bed. And uh, she watches her matlock and then rolls it up. At, at quarter after 10, the multiple pose show up. There are seven of them. Seven deadly pose. The seven deadly pose. I was trying to think of a million, you know, there's got to be a million, seven, seven brides for seven poses. There's all kinds of Oh, that's a good one, yeah. They file into the living room, uh, and Mr. Allen immediately sets about arranging chairs in this kind of semicircle with the help of his brothers, murmuring something about the nature of the experiment. And now he sees that they all have this same pallid, waxy complexion. Yeah, and they don't, their faces don't really move very much when they talk. Yes, and they sit him down, and they face him in a semicircle. I don't know, Mr. Poe number one says, our intention <laughs> is to produce for you certain impressions of extraterrestrial life. All that is necessary for you to do is to relax and to be receptive. <laughs> so they sit down in the semicircle. He's with them. It's like yeah. the weirdest AA meeting of all time. <laughs> yeah. And, and, they begin, and so they begin, he says, what I can only describe as singing, a low, not unpleasant, almost lulling humming, increasing in volume and broken with sounds I assumed were words, although I couldn't make out any of them. The song they sang and the way they sang it was indescribably foreign. The key was minor and the tonal intervals did not resemble any terrestrial musical system which, with which I was familiar, although it seemed to me to be more oriental than occidental. Gradually he starts to relax and the, the 
area around him begins to kind of change and warp and the walls kind of fade away and it starts to get pretty trippy. Yes, and this is what he begins to see. Vast vistas of space whirled before me in an alien dimension and central in them was an aggregation of gigantic cubes scattered along a gulf of violet and agitated radiation and other figures moving among them, enormous iridescent rugose cones rising from a base almost 10 feet wide to a height of over 10 feet and composed of ridgy, scaly, semi-elastic matter and sporting from their apexes four flexible cylindrical members, each at least a foot thick, and of a similar substance, though more flesh-like, as that of the cones, which were presumably bodies for the crowning members, which, as I watched, had an ability to contract or expand, sometimes to lengthen to a distance equal to the height of the cone to which they adhered. Two of these members were terminated with enormous claws, while a third wore a crest of four red trumpet-like appendages, and the fourth ended in a great yellow globe, two feet in diameter, in the center of which were three enormous eyes, darkly opalescent, which, because of their position in the elastic member, could be turned in any direction whatsoever. It was such a scene as exercised the greatest fascination upon me, and yet at the same time spread in me a repellence inspired by its total alienation and the aura of fearful disclosures which alone could give it meaning and a lurking terror. Moreover, as I saw the moving figures which seemed to be tending the great cubes with greater clarity and more distinctness, I saw that their strange heads were crowned by four slender gray stalks carrying flower-like appendages, as well as from its nether side eight sinuous elastic tentacles, moss green in color, which seemed to be constantly agitated by serpentine motion, expanding and contracting, lengthening and shortening and whipping around as if with life independent of that which animated more sluggishly the cones themselves. The whole scene was bathed in a wan red glow, as from some dying sun which, failing its planet, now took second place to the violet radiation from the gulf. So, what are those things? <laughs> Can anybody tell us what these things are? Yithians, yeah. right. Plus, plus some of the creatures left over from Dreams in the Witch House, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, it's a little, a little hodgepodge there, but mostly they're Yithians. Now, just I want to remember, Yithians, they, when they travel through time, they don't physically travel through time, they mentally project themselves into other people's bodies. From the shadow, uh, uh, from the sh uh, shadow, shadow of, time. of time. Yeah, so just remember that. <laughs> well, it, this, he feels this terrible fear suddenly uh, at witnessing the scene, and he falls over in his chair, and the visions stop. We, now, we cover weird fiction, but this is really, this is really weird stuff. It doesn't, it's a... Yeah, it's not weird in the way that we usually no, describe it. It's just plain weird. It's like, just weird. what is going on here? There's a semicircle of pose, and this guy is seeing Yithians, and then his mom's upstairs? <laughs> yeah. Strange singing doesn't bother her at all. She no, sleeps right through it. I thought she would go, keep, keep it down. Keep it down. I'm trying to sleep. Too much cosmic chanting. Well, uh, after they do this, they get up, they all file out. You know, the, he's trying to figure out why would seven identical men be here? Are they quintuplets? Is that even possible? I was yeah. curious about that myself. Yeah. Uh, on November 19th in 97, Bobby and Kenny McCoffey made headlines when she delivered seven babies mm -hmm. who soon became the world's first surviving set of septuplets. So they're in high school now uh, in Des Moines, Iowa, where Lyle Erickson lives. So if you ever see them, tell them we talked about them. Yeah, do they, <laughs> do they look like Poe? 
It's, how's it pronounced? McCoy. McCoy? Do you know? Do you know them? Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Lies. Good enough. Don't elaborate. The, <laughs> the, this whole experience really freaks our main character out, so uh, that gets us into the next chapter, chapter four. And so the next day, he goes to the house where uh, the Poes live and knocks on the door. No answer. And he figures, I'm just going to do a little E and E. Why not? Yeah. I'll just go in. He's going to go in. When he goes in, it looks like nobody's been living here at all. It's decrepit. It's, uh, it's dusty. But as he goes toward the back of the house, there's a large room. It has this soft uh, glowing, like violet glowing emanating. This is so confusing. From what appeared to be a long glass-encased slab, which, with a second unlit similar slab, stood surrounded by machinery, the like of which I had never seen before save in dreams, and which he just really can't describe, it appears. There's, I, I can't figure out what this machine looks like. Here's uh, some more of what he had to say about it. I moved cautiously into the room, alert for anyone who might prevent my intrusion. No one and nothing moved. I drew closer to the violet lit glass case and saw that something lay within, though I did not at first encompass this because I saw what it laid upon, nothing less than a life-sized reproduction of a likeness of Edgar Allan Poe, which, like everything else, was illuminated by the same pulsing violet light, the source of which I could not determine, save that it was enclosed by the glass-like substance which made up the case. But when at last I looked upon that which lay upon the likeness of Poe, I almost cried out in fearful surprise, for it was, in miniature, a precise reproduction of one of the Rugos cones I had seen only last night in the hallucination induced in my home on Angel Street, and the sinuous movement of the tentacles on its head, or what I took to be its head, was indisputable evidence that it was alive. Wow. That doesn't make any sense. So, are the slabs on top of each other? Well, well, or are this... they just wired up together? Are they standing up like this, or...? Okay, there's so many questions here. Also, okay, yeah. yeah okay. Ask some of them. One, question number two, the, that was the first one. Two is, there is a life-size reproduction of Edgar Allan Poe. What is that? Is it, uh, is it made of clay? Did is they it make it? Mannequin? Did they get it from a wha- Madame Tussauds? Is it paper mache? Like? They don't say. It I doesn't make any sense. Because later on in the story, it kind of makes sense. But then when you look back at this, no, you're like, doesn't. no, it doesn't make any sense. And then, this is the craziest bit. There is a, a mini Yithian, like a little one. Yeah, why is it little? I don't know. And it's moving it around and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's on. It's like crawling around on the Poe. And why? Why is it doing that? I don't where I mean, I assume it's the... Pro- I, no, actually, I shouldn't... I don't know anything about it. But, the, you know, one of the funny things he says, I escaped from the house undetected, though I thought I caught a brief glimpse of a Poe-esque face at one of the upper windows. <laughs> like, at this point, he's still saying Poe-esque, like he doesn't get it. Anyway, he hightails it out of there. He'd seen enough. He, so, okay, he says, I, I, I walked the streets by night, or I, I was convinced at that point that the Poe's walking the streets by night had a purpose other than mine in doing so. They're not just casual strollers. They're looking for something. They're looking for something. <laughs> So he goes to the library and does a bunch of research, uh, hoping that he's going to be able to figure out what's going on, yeah. uh, but doesn't say what he's reading. It says he researches Poe and Providence, but what else do you look up? Like, it, I think excuse it's me, ma'am, do you have anything about seven identical Poes in the stacks <laughs> that I could review? <laughs> what, what research is he going to do? I don't, it doesn't matter. Maybe Poe had uh, twins in his family, and then each generation, it, they got more Poes? Oh, well, yeah, I think that's exactly It's, what, it's in the subtext. Well, he, it's in the subtext. Well, he runs into, uh, 
he runs into Mr. Allen again that night, but this is one of the ones that, oh, the, this Mr. Allen doesn't seem to know that he, he'd seen what he'd seen. No, they don't, no, no. He doesn't know about the breaking and entering. Uh, he asks if uh, Arthur's recovered from the experiment, and then he, he tells him what it was he saw. Could we get that, Andrew? It is but one of the worlds outside you saw, Mr. Phillips, Mr. Allen went on. There are many, as many as a hundred thousand. Life is not the unique property of Earth, nor is life in the shape of human beings. Life takes many forms on other planets and far stars, forms that would be seen bizarre to humans, as human life is bizarre to other life forms. Okay. So he goes on to confirm that the star that, he's been, that he saw in his vision was dying, and that uh, Mr. Allen has, has seen it as well, then makes some excuse to go to the Athenaeum. Right. He wants to see Rose talk to her about this, but when he gets there, she's not there. He decides to go to a phone booth and give her a call. She answers, <laughs> this is one of my favorite moments because you finally get to see a little bit of Rose's character, and she's so much cooler than, than this guy. Yeah. Um, why, why don't we read this? I'll, I'll, be, uh, I'll, be, uh, I'll be Rose. Okay, I'll be Rose. I love her. I yeah, want to sure. be Rose. Okay. Have you seen Mr. Allen tonight? Yes, but only for a few moments. I so, was on my way to the library. So did I. He asked me to his home some evening to watch an experiment. Don't go. <laughs> Why not? It would be better not to go. Don't you think, Mr. Phillips, I am the best judge of that? Uh, I mean, only to suggest that it might be dangerous to go. Why? I can't tell you over the telephone. <laughs> I'll think it over. Click. Click. She is not having it. Yeah. Does not want to be told what to do. Nobody tells Rose whether she can see Poe or not. That's my wife. My What's... wife, yeah, no, she, if she wants to see Poe, she's going to see as many Poe's as she wants. Hey, don't ever tell a woman she can't see Poe. That's what I'm saying. No, I love that she's just like, why? I, she thinks he's jealous, I assume, or something like I that. They, I don't yeah. know. I don't know, but that ends chapter four, and we're now into chapter five. The last chapter of this story, thank God. Oh, this is a great detail, though. It says, after a restless, uneasy day at work, I concluded that I must make a tenable explanation to Rose about why he didn't want her to go. And this kind of shocked me that he had a job. All right. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was thinking about it, and Lovecraft protagonists, they generally don't have jobs ever. No. You know, unless they're academic or they're explorers or something like that. But I, I really wish they did, because having to go to work when crazy things are happening in your life is something I think we can all really identify with. It doesn't have to be, you know, Poe's showing you outer space, but anything that's going on at home, it's really tough to get through a work day when you're upset about something. So anyway, all day he was out collecting carts in the parking lot of Target, and all he was thinking was, what am I going to do about these seven Poe's? <laughs> you got me on that one, too. Uh, I'm trying to recover from that one. Uh, I... I just assumed that's what he was doing. For right. So he goes, he goes to the library and is going to wait for her there. And then he, she doesn't show up. So he calls her sister-in-law. And mm -hmm. she says that he's gone out and some gentleman called for her. And he goes, oh, did you get his name? And she goes, oh, no, no I didn't get it. And she goes, uh, what, what did he look like? Yeah, she does some awesome detective work. And she, oh, he's got a mustache. That's him. <laughs> Mr. Allen. I had no further need to inquire. Wow, what a conclusion, you know. Although it could have been Sam Elliott, it could have been Tom Selleck, you don't know. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. 
Well, he goes home. He's able, this is funny again. He wants to get his dad's pistol, but he has to make sure his mom's asleep so she doesn't catch him doing it. <laughs> he gets his dad's gun. He runs over to the house of the seven poes to try and rescue Rose from whatever they might be doing. He busts into the house with the gun and he hears a, a humming sound and the strange chanting and thinks, well, she might not be in danger. Right. They might just be doing the same experiment, this, you know, the magic AA meeting that they did with me. That's probably okay. If only that's what it was. Andrew? For when I pushed my way into that large room on the far side of the house, I saw that which will be forever indelibly imprinted on my mind. Lit by the radiance from the glass case, the room disclosed Mr. Allen and his identical brothers, all prone upon the floor around the twin cases, making their chanting song. Beyond them, against the far wall, lay the discarded life-size likeness of Poe I had seen beneath that weird creature in the glass case, bathed in violet radiance. But it was not Mr. Allen and his brothers that so profoundly shocked and repelled me. It was what I saw in the glass cases. For in the one that lit the room with its pulsating and agitated violet radiation lay Rose Dexter, fully clothed and certainly under hypnosis. And on top of her lay, greatly elongated and with its tentacles flailing madly, the rugose cone-like figure I had last seen shrunken on the likeness of Poe. And in the connected case adjacent to it, I can hardly bear to set it down even now, lay, identical in every detail, a perfect duplicate of Rose. What? Oh no! <laughs> Two roses? I guess they didn't want to stick with the historical author's theme. No, they're branching out. Yeah, they were going to do Mark Twain, but they met this girl. So, yeah, just... <laughs> so they're going to... They're making a duplicate of, of Rose. The little mini, mini Yithian mm -hmm. is crawling up and down her body, like building the other... Is he building the other one, or does he go into it and inhabit it? Like a... I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't... Arthur doesn't stop Arthur... to ask questions. He just starts blasting away with that gun. <laughs> <laughs> Bam, bam, bam. He doesn't even know what he's shooting at, but it, it hits the machinery. Um, and of course, his memory is confused about what happened at this point. But flames, explosions. Yeah, there's flames and explosions. Yeah. He grabs Rose. Uh, the Poes are all crying. Ah, what are you doing? And uh, he gets out of there with Rose. They manage yeah. to escape the home. But she, once they get out, she is hysterical and she's freaking out. And he's trying to calm her down, you know, stroking her back, I guess, and <laughs> telling her it's okay. That's how you do it, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he realized he left his gun behind, and uh, he's... A you can't go back for it, though, because the house is now burning. Exactly. Uh, there are flames leaping up in it. And she calms down for a bit, and then mm -hmm. they, they just move on. But him leaving the gun back there, uh, it was, you know, it was uh, registered to his dad, so the cops find him, and they bust him for arson. Yeah. <laughs> Which, like, these, that's something that never happens in these stories, where the, the, the police... The police come and, yeah, make you pay for the crazy stuff you've yeah. been doing. Well, they, yeah, they do it here. Here, there's a funny bit here. It says, the police say the charred flesh found in that house is not human, most of it. Like, that's something they would share with you? I don't know. <laughs> what do they think it is? Um, yeah. Surely they must know that it must have only been by coincidence that the model they first chose to body snatch was a likeness of Poe, chosen because they had no knowledge that Poe did not represent the average among men. What? <laughs> that doesn't... Okay, that doesn't make any sense. Because what is the original model that they based this body off of was not a living, it couldn't be a living thing. No. So that must mean they found like a An action figure, or, yeah. Sculpture somewhere? This guy looks, this, guy, this is the guy. Let's make this guy, we'll probably fit right in. 
if, especially if there's seven of us that look exactly alike. Nobody will find it suspicious at all. But he's telling this stuff to the police. And actually, at this point, I thought, well, maybe it's just the unreliable narrator. And he's just totally crazy. And none of this stuff ever happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's a possibility. But Because um, it does sound like some things I hear people ranting about on the street sometimes. There's seven bows over there. Look out. <laughs> But he does remember what he was told earlier uh, by Mr. Allen, a more highly developed form of life would hardly need to use such primitive methods. That's when he realizes, oh, they're body snatching. They want to uh, replicate a bunch of men and women and infiltrate our society, and perhaps they've done this already. Yeah, so that's their, that's their plan. And then he starts to get very nervous about Rose herself because you know she hasn't really said anything since that initial hysterical fit. She's calmed down. And he thinks, wait, which... I grabbed one of the roses, but which one was the right rose? Mm -hmm. What was the original rose? Was it the one with the guy or the one without the guy? He's not sure. We conclude with this article. From the Providence Journal, July 17. Local girl slays attacker. Rose Dexter, the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Elijah Dexter of 127 Benevolent Street, last night fought off and killed a young man she charged with attacking her. Miss Dexter was apprehended in an hysterical condition as she fled down Benefit Street in the vicinity of the Cathedral of St. John, near the cemetery attached to which the attack took place. Her attacker was identified as an acquaintance, Arthur Phillips. Oh. That's the end of the story. That she is shot the end him. Of the story. You know, the fact that she was running down the street hysterically leads me to believe it was the real Rose Dexter because the pose, they didn't betray a lot of emotion. So, oh, right, yeah. I, I think she was just like, I don't know what you're talking about. I went over there. It was just fun we were having. Leave me alone. And she shot him. It, it doesn't, <laughs> they, they, Chad, the article doesn't say that she shot him. Oh, what does it say? It just says she, she killed him. So I think she just oh. like broke his neck or. What? <laughs> she did. I don't know. I don't know how she did it, but. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. The, the wax in pose. Remember, they don't, their faces don't move. Maybe, yeah. I'm just throwing this out there. Maybe it was a wax figure from a museum of Poe. And yeah. that's why they had wax faces. So oh. this duplicate of her um, is an actual is based off a living person and not a, a wax dummy. And yeah. so now, the, now it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Also, I didn't like this story that much until Andrew dropped that detail. Her breaking his neck is the best thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Rose wins at the end of the day, and that's what I'm happy about. Yeah, she won. She was the winner. This story was published, and I'm not sure if it was the first publication, but it was in The Dark Brotherhood and Other Pieces, which came out in 1966. Had a number of stories by Lovecraft stories that were said to be by Lovecraft like this one. Um, and I'm not sure if it appeared in magazines before this time. And, and you remember, H.P. Lovecraft is credited as an author on this story. Some people have read this uh, and thought that he was the one that wrote it. In, uh, in, in a lot of these Derleth pastiches, it's based on some actual notes that Lovecraft might have made. What do you think the notes were that he based this off of? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you think it just said multiple pose in there? I, 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 no, I, I was I, talking about multiple poses. I didn't want to... No, I, I can't begin to... Andrew, do you have any ideas on what could possibly, what element of this? Uh, it seems to be he pulled six at random out of a hat and put them together. <laughs> yeah. Stuck them all together. <laughs> yeah, the, the thing with, with the mini Yithian really doesn't make any sense to me at all. No. Like why, well Yithians don't, they're from the distant past, millions and millions of years ago, and somehow there's one here, which is, they're all about time travel, not space travel. Yeah, and he really seems to be conflating Yithians with the stuff that happens in Dreams in the Witch House where he travels to see, and those are 
those are elder things in that story. Yeah. Right. And, and it's, you know, the, the whole, the, the violet void and the dying right. sun and all that stuff. And he really seems to be jamming at least three or four stories together. And, and I feel not like not understanding any of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Passing and, the confusion on to us. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'd like to say that this was an enjoyable read. Uh, and it was. It was. Yeah. You can really say was. that. Yeah. I, I had a good time I, reading I, this. I, I thank you all for coming because you don't have to read this now. <laughs> uh, you, you got a general gist of it, it so hopefully... And it wasn't until I read it out loud that I realized that, you know, like that first paragraph, I think you guys mentioned this in previous episodes, that first paragraph is really just one long sentence. One with a lot of sentence. Comments. Yes. The way <laughs> one he sentence. puts these sentences together is itself psychotic and strange. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time. We kind of actually have run out of time. Yeah, we got to so get out of this room. We do room. have to get so, out of this room. Um, but I want to thank all of our backers for helping us get here. Thanks so much for coming to the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. Again, I want to thank uh, Fedogan and Bremer for sponsoring the show. Please go pick up the Fungi from You Got CD. Definitely pick it up. Also, tonight, don't forget uh, that we're doing our H.P. Uh, Lovecraft comedy quiz show. Yeah. That hopefully will be funny, and that's going to be featuring Chad, myself, Andrew, and Ken Height, yes. with uh, Paul McLean being the host of it. And it's not so much, it's mostly us trying to be funny. And I don't know what it's going to be, but show up and you'll find out. Yeah. Uh, Lyle Erickson, thanks so much for helping us out with music over there. And of course, as always, we want to thank Andrew Lehman. Andrew, you're a dream. We sprung this uh, story on him fast. I think he was just sight reading right there and as always did an absolutely amazing job. Thank you, Andrew. We love you. That's the end of it. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you.
HP Podcast.